I got a phone call a couple of days ago, and I've gotten one or two of these a year for probably the last four or five years. They're always a cold call. They're generally from outside the country, it seems, and they always are trying to do a hard sell on just buying the studio, which is a townhouse, right there on the spot. They want me to sell right there on that phone. But the one I got, I don't know, three days ago, a whole new level. So let me guess, was it a European? I don't think so. She might have just been a really fancy Canadian, for all I know. Or maybe she was in the States, but she just had an accent. It showed up with a local number, but you know, they can do that. So that that isn't really a good indicator, but I see a local number and I think, oh, all right, I'll answer this. And, you know, hello, this is Chris. She immediately goes into the hard sell. Mr. Fisher, I'd like to make you an offer on your property. And she gives me the address. I'm going to be frank with you. Now is your opportunity to get out before the market absolutely collapses. You're not going to get the value for this for years. So sell it now because it's your last chance to get out. So she's just an angel of mercy going around buying overpriced real estate to save homeowners from losing equity in their home. Is that what she's doing? Yeah, bless her heart, right? And imagine the solid she's doing me if say I was already having a hard day. Maybe I was already dealing with like a a life situation or some other stressful thing. And then this person calls me up out of the blue and tells me that I've got to sell my house now or I'm going to get trapped into a a market that sinks and sinks and sinks and I'll never get my value out and I'm going to be underwater on my loan and everything's going to be horrible. This is like (laughs) one of those signs you see driving around and it's always a very low production little sign that's been pasted to a, a post and it says we buy houses for cash and the way that works is people actually sell seminars in this and it's one of those things where hey if you've got this get rich quick scheme why aren't you doing it why are you selling me your scheme that's the first red flag right well what they do is they basically train quote unquote house flippers to approach elderly Americans who are behind on their taxes and offer them a lowball cash offer on their house so that they can pay off their tax burden and then I don't know presumably be homeless that's the play I mean imagine if you got someone on the other end of the line who wasn't 100% with it or maybe they were drunk or something like that it, you just you're going to get all these different range of types of people at different states in their life and to kind of come in with that kind of hard sell it it felt to me like oh we have reached a moment like people are now trying to monetize the panic about the market that to me is a signal that these people have calculated enough people know that we're about to go into some kind of recession that we can use that as a way to sell. And I think that if they buy and sell fast enough, there might be some margin there that they can take advantage of, especially if they really lowball people who are panicked. Yeah, it's possibly also are working for like these BlackRock organizations who are just trying to suck up as much private property as possible and they can afford to sit on it for 30 years. And part of that is this strategy to create rental businesses. But I think another part of that is for big institutional investors, they have money problems, as in how do we save money going forward when sovereign bonds, which were supposed to be the safe asset, are so unstable right now? And the answer is they're looking to those quote unquote traditional stores of value like real estate, maybe like gold eventually, maybe even silver. I hear people talk about it. I don't know anything about it. And eventually we believe because we've drunk the Bitcoin Kool-Aid and thrown our lives down this rabbit hole that they will all come to Bitcoin. Yeah, all roads lead to Bitcoin because money goes to where it's treated best. And Bitcoin is a true scarce decentralized asset that can be mathematically proven and counted for. That's powerful in an era when fiat has lost trust. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Saturday, October 22nd, 2022. Hey, look at that. 222022. And I'm here with the one and only. Uh, It's me. Hey, it's Chris, everybody. I guess we better make it a good one when we got like fancy numbers going on. Should I re-record that? Because I broke our standard pattern. Is that going to upset people? Let's find out. Okay.
the boosts are down. We got to poke them a little bit. So there has been some instability on the node, but it is resolved. Please <laughs> boost in. We really appreciate your questions and comments, and we get a lot of good leads from those boosts. So please support the show by boosting in. This is a relatively light news week. There's some great news that Hoddlenot has defeated Craig Wright in court, and the judge ruled that he's basically not Satoshi. So maybe that saga is ending. There's some quote-unquote interesting news around JP Morgan hiring a former Celsius executive. Goodness. In economics, the global housing bubble looks to be popping in many markets. This says something about the macroeconomic picture. And the Bank of England actually has a blog, which I found, and they have some amazing articles on there. So I'm going to share two of them. One about Venetians and Volcker, and another about global interest rates since 1311. Okay. I'm just going to sit with the fact that they have a blog, but I look forward to that. It's amazing. Yeah. Links in the notes. In tokenomics, there was some funny news about the slotty NFT casino metaverse ICO. Is it a security? Is it something else? Probably a security, according to US regulators. Ethereum is now OFAC compliant as validators are following their financial incentives. And so we have censorship on Ethereum. Goodness, who could have seen it coming? All of us. We all saw it coming. We also have news about a Brazilian bank launching a token on Polygon, which is an Ethereum layer two. And it's kind of interesting how financial institutions are already altcoining. They've skipped Bitcoin. They're going to altcoin. And I think that this is the progression like quote unquote crypto people. They mess around with alts and then Bitcoin welcomes them after they've been burned. And then we have some Bitcoin education with Optech 222, continuing the row of ducks theme of the episode and some feedback. That's our show. I'm looking forward to it. Well, let's just hop in to this story about JP Morgan hiring a former Celsius compliance person. This is obviously hilarious because Celsius was literally a Ponzi scheme, a Ponzi scheme being defined as a business that takes your money and uses it to pay a previous investor. That's a Ponzi scheme. That's what Celsius did because they were bankrupt for most of their existence. And I think that this kind of shines a light on how quote unquote institutional crypto adoption is a joke because if they were serious, they wouldn't be hiring anyone associated with financial Ponzi schemes. Yet here they are. This guy also worked on regulatory matters for Celsius. I think maybe for like eight months or something like that I read. I, this could be looked at as a ninja move by JP Morgan. If you truly wanted to understand how this all worked, it's maybe the smart hire, sort of like how the FBI will often work with hackers to figure out how other hackers are working. If it's that, who knows why JP Morgan's doing this? It's hard to say. You know what really stinks about all of this is companies like JP Morgan can crap on Bitcoin for years, specifically Jamie Dimon and other companies like JP Morgan will say that crypto has no value. Bitcoin has no value. And then one day they kind of quietly wake up and they start making their moves. And then before too long, now they all of a sudden feel like they're in a position to participate in the regulation discussion. And it's an incredible arrogance. They don't even understand the technology. So if they could hire somebody who does have some kind of actual insights and actually use it for the right purposes, I could see it as a ninja hire. I see. So essentially, financial companies like JP Morgan will want to push the limits of legality as far as they possibly can. So hiring people who have enabled financial Ponzi schemes is logical because these individuals have already pushed that limit and they can educate JP Morgan. This person has a particular expertise in the edges of the law, right? So it's perfect. I feel like this leads nicely into SBF, which I didn't mention previously, 
But Sam Bankman-Fried, who is the founder of FTX, he's also the founder of Alameda Research, a hedge fund. And he's been involved in, not maybe not Celsius, but he was involved in Voyager, which was a Celsius-like platform that went bankrupt. Three arrows capital. And he's been making some moves or talking about how he's suddenly pro-crypto regulation while his company is being investigated in Texas for offering unlicensed securities to its users. And then later after that investigation went public, SBF said on Twitter that they're going to have their legal team review all of the uh, assets that are traded on FTX US and remove the ones that they deem securities. And they're going to throw all of the, the litany of tests at them like the Howie tests and whatnot. First of all, I don't really believe that. And second of all, you're just doing that now? You're just doing that now? Just now? Like, <laughs> you didn't do that before you listed them? What was your due diligence before you listed them then? Right. And if you did that, you throw all of the speculative altcoins that drive engagement and trading fees on these centralized exchanges and you throw them out because there is one non-security. It's Bitcoin. Yeah. The next step down is making a convoluted argument about Ethereum saying, yes, it was a scam and a mess and a security initially, but now it's not. And frankly, who cares? The reasonable thing to do would be to not list Ethereum. And that's actually what CoinFloor did. They were this British exchange that listed Bitcoin, then Ethereum. They did, I think, monthly proof of reserves. And then they delisted Ethereum when there was all this talk about moving to proof of stake because they said, hey, if you can fork consensus, then it decentralized. And then I believe the founder of CoinFloor went on to work at or found Fedi, which is the Fediment-focused Bitcoin startup. Yeah, I don't really see how FTX can get out of this, right? Because Solana is probably a great example of a clear security. And honestly, that's fine if they want to be a security. But FTX currently allows you to buy Solana. They allow you to buy Ethereum, also a centrally managed cryptocurrency. On here, they list Avalanche and Matic. Our problem is not with securities. If you you want to issue a security, you're free to do so. Our problem is with people issuing securities and then affinity scam marketing saying they're equivalent to Bitcoin, but it's actually a security that's centrally managed and controlled by a team. And that, in our view, I believe, if I'm representing you correctly, Chris, is the problem because it's a lie that it is similar to Bitcoin. Yeah. Bitcoin is something else entirely. It's a it's a commons. It's an open source software project. It's distributed fairly. There's this problem with these proof of stake altcoin launches. They don't know how to fairly distribute tokens, so they give them all to insiders. And it's hilarious because we know how to fairly distribute tokens. It's called proof of work. And proof of work means that if you want to spend dollars on physical hardware and dollars on electricity, you can use that to get these tokens. That's fair. Anyone can choose to spend those dollars. Well, you might say, oh, well, you know, not everyone has dollars to spend on that. And I would say, okay, well, I don't think that cryptocurrency ICOs are going to solve the problem of global equality and financial and economic equality. That's a whole separate issue. Well, if you just let SBF make as much money as possible, then he will, you know, it went for the ones he chooses. It's going to be fascinating to watch this play out. He's now also released his own idea of great crypto regulation. I haven't been able to bring myself to actually read it because I know it's going to be infuriating. I'm 
I'm just sure. But at some point, I'm going to try to read it. I don't really think it's going to go anywhere. It's disclosures and investor protection and education, just like with regular securities. And maybe even, I mean, I don't think he said this, but it's hinted, maybe you need a new definition of a qualified investor. Because right now, if you make $200,000 a year or more in the US or have greater than $1 million of assets, you can apply to become a registered investor and then you're allowed to invest in riskier things because the assumption is that you're wealthy enough to take the hit. Yeah. Which may or may not be true. I don't know. I think these rules are pretty controversial. Yeah, they don't really seem like they work so well in this space. But either way, this gets sorted out. I think why it's a it's a bug in our bonnet is because the affinity scamming that you mentioned, basically taking the glory of Bitcoin and wrapping yourself in it to sell your own product is what drives us crazy. And they do that by using keywords like decentralization and the, and just the different different types of terminology about the technology. But what really matters to I don't mean to speak for you, Dad, but I think what matters to us is that over time people will hopefully realize there is truly a difference and there can never be another currency like Bitcoin now that it's been created. Unfortunately, the mechanism to learning that is getting wrecked. And so hopefully everyone who messes around with these securities doesn't drink the Kool-Aid too deeply and get completely financially wrecked so they can't recover and survive for Bitcoin to welcome them. Just a quick aside, I got a really sad note from a listener who went all in on ADA, which is uh, Cordana. And Cordana has crashed down to something like 34 cents. And I think they went in when it was way up higher. So now they're just trying to figure out like how to buy food and things like that by converting ADA into currency if they can, but they're selling at a massive loss. You know, they thought this was going to be the next Ethereum killer when they went in like a year ago, whatever it was, when it was like $2. Oh, man. And they thought it was a great deal at $2 and now it's down at 34 cents. That's sad to hear. Unfortunately, that's pretty consistent with our forecast for these Ethereum killers, which were part of this L1 blockchain rotation thesis. Shout out to Chainlink God. Total D. Gen, but good article about the mechanics of the L1 rotation. Sometimes you get wrecked on the uh, stock exchanges. Sometimes you get wrecked on the crypto exchanges. And sometimes you get wrecked in court. Which happened to Craig Stephen Wright this week. This was welcome news. CSW, aka Fake Toshi, as he is sometimes known in the press and on Twitter, sued Hodlnot in British court, claiming that Hodlnot, the anonymous crypto Twitter poster, had defamed CSW and called caused financial damage to his reputation by saying that CSW was not Satoshi Nakamoto. Hodlnot pre-sued him or something. He did some complicated legal move where you basically head off the lawsuit with another lawsuit, but this this new lawsuit was in Norway because Hodlnot is a Norwegian citizen. And in Norway, the rules around these court cases are a bit more favorable to Hodlnot. And that enabled him with the help of the OpenSats initiative to mount a truth legal defense, which is different from McCormack's case with Craig Wright in England, which happened earlier, I think this year, where McCormack didn't try the truth defense because he was worried it was too expensive. But Hodlnot got some support from the Bitcoin community and did a truth defense where basically his lawyers and consultants looked through Wright's documented evidence that he uses to claim that he's Satoshi Nakamoto and found multiple forgeries, sloppy forgeries all over the case. And it was just great news. 
because someone stood up to Wright. Someone said, Wright, show me everything you got. He did. And it was a complete letdown to anyone who thought he might be Satoshi Nakamoto. The community funding story here, I think, should be underscored. It enabled this kind of defense and people gave and there's funds left over. And it sounds like OpenSats intends to either let you eventually withdraw those funds or uh, use them for the next legal fight that will come, at which Bitcoin's going to face this for years. The other thing about this case is we we really got a lot of good, solid discovery. We saw that CSW has most likely manufactured documents to try to look like he was designing Bitcoin back in 2017. But unfortunately, the application he used to create that document wasn't even released by Adobe until 2015. And so little inconsistencies in metadata and stuff like that were exposed over and over again, enough to really kind of indicate a, a, a clear pattern, in my opinion. But the other thing, and you know, I think maybe you agree with me, is I've kind of had a mixed take on the Bitcoin magazine organization. I like a lot of what they do, but I also don't like some of the things they do. And they did the community an incredible solid with this court case. They had cameras there every single day, and they have hours upon hours of Craig Wright's lies on video. And it's tremendous. I watched a lot of it on YouTube. They've been posting it online. You know, I didn't watch all of it, but I watched probably about an hour's worth just to kind of get a feel for how Craig lies in court and how he works and, um, you know, his temper and whatnot. And I felt like they did a really solid job then Bitcoin Magazine again. They did a recap of each day's proceedings on video and uh, kind of, you know, they had two different reporters there documenting it, one primary, and she did a terrific job of just summarizing the day's events, keeping everybody posted on what was going on. Just really good stuff. So if you go look at Bitcoin Magazine and you can, you know, search up Craig Wright, you'll see a lot of video of him lying right to the camera. Yeah, it's great to have that video evidence because if that stays out there, it really just discredits his future claims and makes it harder for him to come back. And I agree with you completely. Credit where credit is due. I think that Bitcoin Magazine has a tough job because as this week in news shows, there's not necessarily enough Bitcoin news to kind of have interesting stories every day. And so you end up needing to have content to fill your magazine and your website. And some of it is a bit goofy. Bitcoin saves religion. Bitcoin will save marriage, all this stuff, you know, which is just very silly. It's taking kind of, in my view, culture war memes and sticking them onto Bitcoin, not to anyone's compliment, maybe. But in this case, they forked out the cash to have coverage and to sort of highlight the case for the community. So great work. Also, the fact that Craig was unwilling to cryptographically prove he's Satoshi was, I think, taken note by the judge and I think played a significant role in the decision here. And I'm kind of not doing it justice with the summary, but essentially it was because it's so doubtful Craig is Satoshi, it was reasonable for Hoddlenot to be critical online. And so therefore Hoddlenot won the case. Is, is it like my layman summary of what happened? I feel like we can be less careful about saying that based on the outcome of this court case, it suggests that Craig Wright is a massive fraud in his claims to be Satoshi Nakamoto. I feel safe to say that. It seems clear that his one obvious sure shot way to prove he was Satoshi, he intentionally destroyed. He claimed in this court case that he stomped on the hard drive and destroyed the hard drive that has his original keys because he came to the conclusion that society would never accept that answer. And so he must prove it to our hearts. Goodness, that sounds like crap. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a narcissist. I don't know how to lead into a global housing bubble popping, but there's a lovely article from Wolf Street with some graphs that shows the falls in house price indexes in some major international markets. He looks at Canada specifically because Canada has been a recipient of massive liquidity, mostly from Asia, from China, that has used the Canadian housing market as a savings technology. And this has just shot the price of Canadian houses up. There's a graph here that goes back to 1999. And in most years, Canadian 
Canadian housing prices are increasing between 1% and 2% on average across the entire country. And as we know from economics, percentage increases over years really, really add up. And this is all markets. If you look at the hot markets like Toronto and Victoria, these price charts just look like a topographic map of Mount Everest, but they have peaked and seem to be crashing down this year. And I think this is interesting because housing prices are a reflection of both the amount of liquid money in the global financial system, and also they're a reflection of the amount of available financial leverage, because most people don't think it's a responsible thing to do to trade stocks at 90% leverage, meaning you have $1 for every $10 of exposure. That would seem very risky. But doing that on a house? Oh, yeah, sure. Go ahead. That's just good finance. So when housing prices crash, it kind of reveals that credit is contracting, that global dollar liquidity is contracting. And this is just a shout out to the euro dollar deflation thesis of Jeff Schneider, who's sort of its most vocal proponent, and the concept of financial system deflation. So even as our consumer prices rise inside the financial system, money might actually be being destroyed when the system is looked at as a whole. And this seems to be another one of these macro signal indicators that is blinking brighter than even the 2008 recession. These price drops go deeper than they did in 2008. They go deeper than they did in 2001, 2007. It's the deepest that they've ever measured since 1999. And we're not saying panic and sell your home because one, you'd probably have to buy another home. So, But we will make you a great offer if you act now because you know what? Your value is going quick. Call us. One interesting thing in these charts is you see that in the popular markets like Montreal, big cities that have a lot of population and economic activity, the falls are much smaller than in these sort of third or fourth tier cities like Halifax that are much smaller. And they experienced real pops in price from the pandemic trends of people moving to smaller places. And this is almost like altcoin economics. Altcoins pump hard because they're thinly traded illiquid markets. So they pump hard and they crash hard. And these smaller cities have a similar dynamic because there's less housing and the demand is much more volatile. Suddenly, everyone wants to live in a small town. Now that companies are requiring people to go back to the office, everyone has to sell out of a small town. So you get these exciting charts. You know, it'd be interesting to see how long this goes on for. It is really a shame for people who are leveraged up on their real estate or for people who are really counting on the price of their real estate for retirement or whatever it might be. There's another angle in which to view this. According to Pew Research, 52% of 18 to 19 year olds are still living with their parents because of the cost of housing. I've also seen outrageously high statistics about millennials that are older millennials in their late 30s and 40s that are living with more family than ever because of the cost of housing. There have been two now, what are we looking at? Two or three generations that are reaching adult age and even mid adult age that have been unable to afford housing. And here in the Seattle area, we have felt this in particular on the West Coast. House pricing is just absolutely ludicrous. And land prices are ludicrous. I've looked at tiny plots of land that are $800,000. It's just out of control. And so, you know, these prices could actually afford to slide for a couple of years to get pricing down to affordability level for certain generations. I don't know how likely that could actually be because there is only so much inventory and there is always probably a buyer out there at certain prices. But we could stand a bit of a reset on these housing prices because they have been out of the reach for a couple of generations at least. You know, it's funny. I was actually thinking about 
this in the context of Japan before we started recording, because in many ways, Japan has been the test case for a lot of the extreme monetary and fiscal policies we've seen transmit to the rest of the world since 2008, because Japan started doing quantitative easing, which is the central bank buying assets to create quote unquote financial system liquidity, but it didn't really. It didn't really achieve that goal. It just seems to have stimulated financial asset prices, which actually raised the price of real estate, all things equal. And Japan also experimented with massive fiscal stimulus programs that invested in infrastructure before any other country did. And while the US and Europe maybe have made less infrastructure investments, they've also followed that model of having huge government deficits that spend a lot of money into their domestic economies. Though instead of building power plants and roads, they've been, I don't know, subsidizing green energy and also the social safety net. All kinds of financialization shenanigans. Really, if you think about it, these companies have become financial tools. Stock buybacks are part of that, but just the way they play with money, all the crazy VC funding we've seen, there's been unlimited free alcohol at the party and we just saw exponential growth. This is something I've been thinking about in terms of my listeners, Dakota Radio, is they're getting laid off at these companies that have been hiring like crazy because now all of a sudden they got to reduce headcounts. It's a shift in their corporate strategy, a shift from like, we're going to build something that's going to earn us billions of dollars in 10 years. These like big goals where they got to hire, hire, hire as fast as possible to now they're shifting to, we got to make money right now. We got to show the stock market that we can make money right now, or we got to show that VC that we can make money right now with the products that we have. And there's this sense of, you know, you had over a decade of free money, basically unlimited alcohol at the party and you partied really hard. Now you got to show something for it. You need to show the results. But there were always losers at that party. And in Japan, these losers were called neats or something. They were people who weren't able to get on the employment track in the 90s when they graduated college and they ended up living at home basically until now. And we're seeing a similar pattern in the US and other developed countries where because of housing prices, the delta between housing price and wage growth, that's the affordability delta. As that affordability gets lower, the price delta gets higher, people have to live at home longer. And so we're treading a path that Japan has been on for a long time. And frankly, I think it's a path of stagnation and it's a path of essentially social decay. You have old people running a society. You have young people unable to find opportunity and express themselves creatively and be economically successful and start families and do interesting things. And this can create resentment and tension and extreme policies. Japan, I think, was spared from a lot of that. I don't know why, maybe because they have a slightly different social model, more consensus driven. But I think we see that tension socially today. I see what you're saying. And I think it's also my analogy of unlimited alcohol at the party. It's like, what happens if you drink copious amounts of alcohol and you party too hard? You damage your body, you get sick, you have a hangover. You'll get better, you'll recover. But that's where we're at right now. I know, we need the harsh medicine of Bitcoin. What is Bitcoin in this analogy? I don't think it's a hair of the dog. It's something else. (laughs) It's like the morning at the toilet and then feeling better afterwards. And then you got to have a good meal, which in our case would be good energy and good energy sources. You heard it here first. Bitcoin (laughs) is a toilet. (laughs) Bitcoin.com is a toilet.
<laughs> Have you seen this? They've announced the Verse token sale. They're launching Verse, the official rewards and utility token that powers the Bitcoin.com ecosystem. And you can get on the list today. That's what Bitcoin.com is shilling right now. Oh my God, how the mighty have fallen. There was a time when the Bitcoin.com web wallet was the most popular cryptocurrency wallet in the world. And now they're selling worthless altcoins that are clearly securities, in my opinion. This is such a shame to see because people may go there to try to learn about Bitcoin. And what they're shilling you is what they call a token to the DeFi ecosystem for the Bitcoin.com ecosystem. They make it sound like the Bitcoin ecosystem, but they add the .com on there. What a tragedy. You know, it's a shame that these interests have seized these domains and are in this position. Point people to the legit one, which is Bitcoin.org. I think that's the more official site, if there could be such a thing. What we are living through right now is the entail of an over-financialization where people are still willing to do a few Hail Mary type investments because, hey, we'll get big returns. You know, it's, it's been a decade plus of thinking like this. People have been chasing long-term returns because they've had free money in the short term. And so I think you're still going to have people experimenting with that because that's just become the way of thinking. And so why not launch a token? And sure, there'll be lots of money that just comes flowing into this random token during a recession. Like they're just not even connected with reality. The Bank of England blog, bankunderground.co.uk, definitely worth a peek, has an article, Venetians Voker and Value at Risk, Eight Centuries of Bond Market Reversals. And I think there's some good data here in the sense that they look through the history of sovereign bond markets and they identify a very obvious correlation, which is you get a bond bull market when global rates are falling because of the math of bonds. As interest rates are falling, bonds that were issued before the fall in interest rates become more valuable. And so you get a bond bull market whenever interest rates fall over a multi-year period. And putting our current bull market and reversal in context historically is pretty interesting because our current bond bull market is actually one of the longest. And it's certainly the longest in the last 200 years because the other three comparable periods were in the 14th, 15th, and 17th centuries. You know, when something lasts that long, people start to think it's a way of life. Yeah. So when we look back at history, and I read a lot of financial history, I can say that nothing has ever changed in terms of financial markets, in terms of human behavior. We imagine our society today is so different than societies of the past. And maybe at the service level, it looks a little bit different, maybe a bit cleaner or something. But human behavior has not changed at all. And so I think that we'll all discover that we're not living in an era of exceptionalism. It's just your standard bond bull market correcting. And what does that mean? It means that there's going to be a period likely where financial assets may be depressed in price again, and the world will sort of have a lot of volatility in asset prices and relative money prices as people try to find the building block of the next bull run, the, the building block of the next financial market. We think we found it. We think it's Bitcoin, but the rest of the world hasn't decided yet. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll watch them as they try to figure it out. I mean, I think it's amazing that all of these macro conditions are setting up where Bitcoin is the answer to a lot of these problems. That's a fascinating thing that's happening just at a perfect moment in history. Uh, and if Satoshi hadn't created Bitcoin and released it back in 2009, and it didn't have these 13 plus years of, of building and growing and establishing a network and becoming even more sound, it wouldn't necessarily be in the right position. Like if, say back in 2008, uh, instead of doing uh, the, the big beginning of quantitative easing and bailing out the market, if, if the Fed had just let everything crash and, you know, just went full free market capitalists and let everything crash and rebuild itself and things came back stronger or something, Bitcoin would not have been ready, wouldn't have been in a position back then. It just wouldn't have been considered at all. We were still using it to buy pizza. 
it's, you know, a couple of years into it, it was not even out in 2008. And so it just wasn't, it just, it was a technology that was, you know, sound and ready to go, but it just did not have the network adoption. Now it's a meme. Like everybody, like it's, it's a worldwide phenomenon at this point. It's so much more widely adopted. Things need the right timing to break through the S curve and become mass adopted. And I imagine now is the time. The other article from the Bank of England blog is about global interest rates since 1311. And this article, I would say, has to be taken with a bit more salt because they have this chart where they aggregate interest rates from central banks since the age of Venice in the 14th century. And they make this pretty chart where global, quote unquote, risk-free interest rates are just trending downwards in a line. Well, how do they get this beautiful data? Basically, at moments of monetary transition, where, say, Venice gets burned and their currency is worthless, and now the financial center moves to, say, Antwerp or something, they jump to the data from Antwerp. And so they avoid the volatile, explosive transition periods where markets go crazy and so that they can draw a pretty line. (laughs) And so this is kind of a selective use of data to make a slightly esoteric argument. But another trend line that they haven't really incorporated into this data is that global interest rates have fallen in line with global regulation that has restricted participation in financial markets. Oh, you got the bell. (laughs) This is another thesis of Jeff Schneider, which is that the data around interest rates and financial markets is really useless because the participants are legally limited. I can't participate in that market. You can't participate in that market. And so it really tells us a very limited thing about the state of the economy, the state of financial markets. And so this actually, in my view, explains a lot. Why is policy so blind? Why, you know, why can't policy solve financial stability problems? And the answer is because not only are policymakers driving by looking in the rearview mirror because they look at historical data. They're not looking at forward indicators, but also the data itself can't be collected because their own rules make participation in these markets arbitrary. Anyway, that was our financial libertarian take of the day. And we can move on to the Wild West of tokenomics. You know, I just love that they have a blog. That's so great. You know, it's something that stands out about this bear market that we're going through, the crypto winter, if you will, if that's what people are calling it. I think one of the things that we're going to remember about this one is this really seems like when the regulators came after a lot of crypto. I mean, we're seeing the SEC talk very tough. We're seeing them go after several projects. We see Texas is going after FTX. And apparently the Texas State Securities Board is also making a stink about some NFT sales or investments that they think might be securities, something tied to the metaverse. It's like all of a sudden it's open hunting season. Indeed. I think that regulators tried to ignore crypto markets for a long time, hoping they would go away. And as Bitcoin kept rising from the dead and the Bitcoin imitators kept imitating and affinity scamming with Bitcoin, they're eventually forced to take action. And maybe that time is now. You don't think it has anything to do with the fact that the market's down? Like they didn't want to do anything they would screw up the party. They would screw up the investors that were making a bunch of money on Wall Street. But now that everything's down and big money's out and all that's left is the plebs, they seem to be going after these, all these, all these. And also they went after the Celsiuses and the BlockFi's that were generating yield. Like that's where it really started during the downturn when everybody bailed into stable coins, when all the plebs bailed into stable coins, they started going after those custodial services that give you yield, rightfully so likely. But then after that, they started moving on to the exchanges and the projects. And I just think it's interesting that like for nearly a year, 
year and a half, two years, they just turned a blind eye while the market went crazy. And now as soon as the market turns down, the timing of that just seems suspicious to me. I think that regulators have been hesitant to pop financial bubbles over the past 10 years. But now that the goal is to rein in inflation, it's open season on financial bubbles. And so that might be part of the story. But the bubble we're talking about here is this weird NFT metaverse project that was offering these NFTs in, I guess, the Facebook metaverse. And they're obviously securities because they're ERC721 tokens. So these are Ethereum tokens. They're not Ethereum. They're this thing you can issue on Ethereum. And they give you the right to get some sort of other token that this slotty project is producing. It's basically the orange grows in the metaverse from the Howey test. It's kind of hilarious. Do we have anything else to say on that? Well, I mean, it's interesting because this slotty project is being hit by the Texas financial regulator with an investigation, while in Brazil, their largest neo bank, which is called New Bank, is creating its own token, which is basically a private bank money. And this is a company that has their own crypto trading platform, and it ties in with the Brazilian financial system. I mean, this is pretty wild in my view. I do not think that US or European financial regulators would allow this. But this company that apparently has a bank license in Brazil is issuing a token on top of an Ethereum layer two. That's wild to me. And I just imagine it will go horribly wrong and hurt the users of said bank. Kind of looks like Celsius to me a little bit, to be honest. But while we're talking about securities, Ethereum seems like it's doing really well complying with the US Treasury sanctions. And if you go to mevwatch.info, you can actually see a chart of how many post-merge blocks are OFAC compliant. And (laughs) as you filter by minute, hour, day, it just gets more and more compliant. The five-minute average is 65% OFAC compliance. It drops to 58% over the last hour. And if you look at the entire time frame, it's only 38%. So what does that tell you? It tells you that the incentive towards financial centralization and OFAC compliance on Ethereum is pushing more and more validators in that direction. And I just fail to see how Ethereum is a useful project if it has the same sort of financial censorship that you get in the traditional banking system. It's just a couple steps away from a permission-closed system, in my view. So what this is really showing us is how much power these OFAC-compliant validators have over the Ethereum blockchain, right? Am I getting that right? Basically, these are validators that are using data from these minor or maximum extractable value data feed providers who help Ethereum validators steal money from their users because that's the thing they do on Ethereum. And because this is just a pure financial transaction, it makes sense to do OFAC compliance. So you just don't have that additional complication as you're screwing Ethereum users while processing their transactions. Right. What do you care? It's, you're not, yeah. you're not, what just seems so striking is the rate at which it is increasing as if we are, are we witnessing Ethereum centralize this fastly? I, I just, I, I struggle to understand how it could be increasing so quickly when you break it down from, like you said, all time. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's small. It's 36%. But then you just jumped 30 days ago, 43%. You jumped to an hour ago, 59%. You jumped to five minutes ago, 62%. And then when you look at the chart of over time, 
time. It's just up and going in one direction. What are we seeing here? Is this is this telling us that people are... We're seeing the truth, Chris. This is the truth of Ethereum. All of the big tent Ethereum fluffy pony narratives about how it was about governance and yada yada and bring your meme, it'll happen on Ethereum. It was all a lie. Ethereum is a machine for squeezing money out of noobs who believe marketing because there are early Ethereum bag holders that need exit liquidity. Ethereum architected itself for financial scams. So you could create scam tokens on Ethereum and dump them in a way that would make you money and also pump the price of Ethereum. Everything about Ethereum is about pumping the short-term price and creating financial incentives to lock up tokens so that early Ethereum holders can dump on you and get exit liquidity. These are the incentives of Ethereum. And these are the incentives of financial centralization and who cares about censorship, in my opinion. Your link in the show notes goes to a Reddit thread where the author explains one of the reasons it's happening so quickly is the validators are choosing to use Flashbots and other uh, MEV or MEV relay services that are more profitable, like you were saying. They're making more money by using the OFAC compliant services. So they're not necessarily doing it at the validator level, at the protocol level, but they're using secondary services to choose which transactions go into the blocks they validate. At those services there, they are doing OFAC compliance. And because it's more profitable for them to use those services, these these large validators, they are essentially outsourcing that decision to a company who is doing OFAC compliant validations. If I'm understanding this correctly, it's explained in the Reddit thread. And so that's why it's increasing so quickly is large validators, they don't have to make any changes on their back end. They can just start working with these service providers who are also just doing OFAC compliant transactions and uh, it just sort of takes care of itself and they make more money. So everybody's happy. This is the knock-on effects of the Roger Ver, Gavin Andreessen argument of Bitcoin. Bitcoin XT and Bitcoin Cash, which is it's fine if the node has to be a $10,000 server. Lots of people have $10,000. And eventually that moves to a point where running your own infrastructure is too complicated and expensive. And so you outsource it to someone else. And then you get Ethereum and compliant companies providing network level infrastructure that leads to censorship and centralization. Bitcoin took a radically different approach that was always focused on user validation of the chain, keeping it easy and simple to run your own Bitcoin node. So I think we just continue leaning into that and continue winning. We should probably do another run your own node episode too, because I'm sort of souring on Umbral. So maybe we can do another node. Yeah, I've been thinking about spinning up a new node myself. I mean, I always want to try the Nix Bitcoin project. I want to do that for a long time. Yeah, I also have a mixed thing on Umbral. It's worked really great for me, but it also feels fragile. Every single update, I really clench and, and have gone into troubleshooting mode a couple of times now, unfortunately. I just recently got my hands on a really slick Raspberry Pi killer, and I talked about it in the self-hosted podcast. This episode of the Dad Pod here is theoretically brought to you by the self-hosted podcast. This is mostly just, you know, really a spot for me to promote something, I suppose, which is really nice of you. So go check out self-hosted. We just had a fresh episode where I uh, talk about a Raspberry Pi killer, and we talk about whole home adjas and all kinds of good stuff. Selfhosted.show. I wish that you'd released that episode a year ago because I bought the Rock 5B presale, which is an 
awesome single board computer. Again, a Raspberry Pi killer, but it has lower specs than the Odroid H3 Plus you mentioned. And now I'm feeling a little buyer's remorse. I'm very excited to put into production. I'm still like all the parts are still arriving. I've got the unit itself. The RAM arrived, but I'm still waiting for the disk. And I'm going to put it all in. It's going to be my new application server at home. Well, I'll be interested in seeing how that goes. Now in Bitcoin education, it's a thin week. We are going to go through Bitcoin Optech 222, row of ducks. So there are a couple of things that were covered in previous episodes. They get into the block parsing bug that brought down LND nodes. Uh, was it two weeks ago now when there was that very large? Yeah, it sounds right taproot transaction. Yeah. LND uses a Bitcoin core implementation called BTCD and BTCD has a non-consensus rule in there that limits the size of transactions. And so a massive taproot transaction is too big. It borks BTCD and that forces LND to fork off onto its own little chain and it won't see new lightning channel updates on the main Bitcoin chain, essentially. I really like their summary. I think this is maybe the summary to read if you haven't yet brought yourself up to date, it's just a few paragraphs long and you get the whole thing. We also talked about how there was a bug fix or a, an upgrade in the recent release that improves transaction replacement options. Essentially, in the past, in order to have a replace by fee RBF transaction propagate, this is when you make a transaction, it sort of hangs in the mempool and it's not getting processed and you're like, okay, you know what? I'm going to fee bump it. So I issue a new transaction transaction that involves the transaction that's stuck and has a higher fee. If you want to get that higher fee, the miner has to mine both transactions. And this is a, a fee bumping protocol. But you know, you could also perhaps change some parameters of the transaction. So apps and businesses that rely on zero confirmation transactions, which they shouldn't, these are transactions that have not been confirmed, they do not exist in the blockchain, they are not safe. Well, these applications have always been a little uncomfortable with the ability to to change transactions in the mempool. Because essentially, from my view, if you're using zero confirmation transactions in your use case or application, you're using Bitcoin in a non-consensus way. And frankly, don't really care if improvements in Bitcoin technology break your app because we never agreed to use Bitcoin that way. A zero confirmation transaction involves a lot of trust. And Bitcoin consensus is not based on trust. It's based on the consensus rules of Bitcoin. Well said. And that's why we trust it. There is also a section on validity rollups research. Bitcoin core contributor John Light has a post which links to a research report about validity rollups. If I'd had more time, I would have read this whole report and we could have talked about it more intelligently. But this is a type of sidechain that stores all of its data on the main chain, which of course begs the question, if you're storing all the data on chain, is it a sidechain? It hasn't really offloaded data. So maybe there's some compression or efficiency gain in that data, but we'll have to read the report and tell you. Yeah, that's actually something maybe worth digging into because it, it does solve that ZK rollup issue where now the main chain becomes dependent on a side chain to have any historical data, which is also a situation that seems a little precarious. This is always a great read. I didn't, you know, I because these things are very complicated topics and the Bitcoin Ops newsletter is really good at summarizing it in really digestible ways. The Musig 2 security vulnerability in particular, I hadn't wrapped my head around that, but all right, you know, the way this is written, I get it. It's a, it's a, 
it's a vulnerability. It's something we need to care about. But, you know, I don't know. I just I really like the way they approach all of these different write ups. I think it's really a digestible approach. People could subscribe and probably learn quite a bit. And the goal here is to boost the signal from the optech, get more people reading it so that we have more engagement and communication around Bitcoin development. And that's how we have great Bitcoin in the future. That's how we keep this project moving forward is being engaged in the development conversations and not falling prey to the complacency and ignorance of other Bitcoin forks, which relied on a small development team that was not answerable to their community. And this created bad incentives that moved those projects in ultimately self-destructive directions. I think the same issue exists on Ethereum. The biggest Ethereum podcast, which I won't name, is championed by a guy who knows much less about Ethereum than I believe either I or Chris know about Bitcoin. And this person is held up as someone who knows a lot about Ethereum. It is such an ignorant user base that do not understand the fundamental technology they're using or the implications of changes in that technology on consensus decentralization and the future health of their project. So if you're into Bitcoin, if you want to contribute to the Bitcoin project, I believe that the first step is to educate yourself. And so sometimes that education might seem daunting or boring. Give it a go. There are things in there that can be interesting. And if Bitcoin Optech is not your cup of tea, because maybe you're less interested in these sort of technical details, I'm sure that there are other aspects of Bitcoin, perhaps its application to social justice issues or its use in oppressive regimes for various types of political causes. There's a lot to research and understand about Bitcoin. And if you put in the effort, you can give it back to the community. So PSA over. No, I agree. I think it's true for uh, Linux development as well, um, and probably democracy to a degree. The other thing, the other lens and why I, I like the Bitcoin ops, and I think other sources like this, and I'll say it, I think the show, I think the dad pod does a really good job of exposing a variety of resources in the show notes. So if you haven't perused the links in a while, in the last few episodes, you know, you could pull out a lot of good resources because what you'll find when you start following these sources is the development continues. Bitcoin continues to be built regardless of what its USD price is doing. Bitcoin and the community around it continue to fix issues, make small improvements. And there's this real meme that Bitcoin is, um, it is stagnant. I heard recently, um, you know, described as, as, as if it was ostrified and it just doesn't move. Um, that's not really true at all. And it's just, it's slow, steady improvements. There's a lot of discussion. There's certain things that do take a while, but you get a sense of that. And you get a sense that if you look at Bitcoin as an investment, your investment is continuing to do work. It's continuing to improve even when the price is down. It's not like everybody takes a break. And so when the price starts to go up again, you know, you'll be pretty up to date on the fundamentals, what actually makes Bitcoin a sound technology as well as a sound money. And so following these resources can kind of give you a sense of relief in a bear market because you see the good work continues to be done. And that might be what it takes to remain a holder or a hodler over time, especially if you know we're going to go through a couple of years of financial crap and the price stays low. Watching this, this development happen in real time can give you the confidence that Bitcoin is very much alive. And if you have recommendations for sources of research or information, please get in touch. You can always email the show at bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or at bitcoindadpod on Twitter. You can also consider joining the Matrix channel maintained by Chris at Jupiter Broadcasting using a Matrix client like Element and join the conversation. We have a correction from last week. A listener pointed out that perhaps CSW's autism explained his bot fight from last week when he didn't realize he was arguing with a bot. I'd just like to make clear that the Bitcoin Dad Pod never intends to 
mock anyone because of any disability they might have. Instead, I think in the case of Craig Wright not realizing whether or not he was fighting with a bot, the point we're trying to make is that there is a huge disconnect between how Craig Wright wants to be perceived as this sort of genius polymath savant and his actual behavior, which is as basically a buffoon and a sort of vulgar ruffian. So that was the point. I hope that anyone on the autism spectrum who was listening didn't feel like we were picking on a disability. It was certainly not our intention. And then there's one that I probably should have caught. I just wasn't really focused on it, but there was a confusion between Go and Swift. In last week's episode, Go is Google's language and Swift is from Apple. Swift is prominent on the iOS and Mac platform and Go is prominent on, well, a lot of the web uh, backend infrastructure and, of course, Google infrastructure. And both are uh, much uh, loved and controversial languages, but not the same thing. Right. So that was my mistake. How embarrassing. But your Bitcoin dad never claimed to be a software developer. He uses old school, reliable languages like Bash. Is that controversial? Was I no, controversial Bash, there? No, Bash is great. I love Bash. Bash is you know what? If you can't make something a Bash script, it shouldn't be made. Some people say Bash scripts shouldn't be longer than 20 lines, but I say push it. Vim can open a million line file with ease. Why not fill it with Bash? This podcast uses the value for value model to support production. That means that you can stream sats to the podcast while you listen or send in Boostergram messages using a podcasting 2.0 app such as Fountain.fm on Android, Podverse, which is a cross-platform and self hostable app. I've been trying to self-host that, and actually, I found it a little complicated. And Castomatic, which is a popular Apple podcasting app. Please use a podcasting 2.0 enabled app, and that will enable you to send in comments and suggestions to the show seamlessly while you're listening, and also support the show with Satoshis. And before we get into our boost, we had a little bit of feedback via email. A listener asked about the Zen protocol and what I thought about it. And I did a little research, and I have to say, I think that this the Zen protocol is somewhere on the scam slash irrelevant axis. It's one of these protocols that attempts to have a consensus mechanism that is costless and accessible. And so they thought maybe this would be a way to make the Zen project accessible to people and get a lot of adoption. But in the end, it sort of misunderstands that producing a monetary good has to be costly for that monetary good to have value. So if we're being charitable, it's a misconceived experiment for being critical. It it's just another altcoin scam. Thanks for sending that in. And I hope that my harsh treatment of Zen does not discourage users from sending in other questions to the show. And we did get some boosts into the show this week. Thank you, everybody. It's uh, much appreciated. Marcel boosted in with 1000 sats. When you mentioned Apple's mobile language, I think you're referring to Swift, not Go. Golang is a language by Google, but it's quite popular outside of Google as well. I agree that Google has really done something pretty great with Go. Swift hasn't really conquered the server side. There is Swift, and you can actually write and deploy Swift applications for Linux. The idea being that, you know, if you were all in on Apple's ecosystem and you only knew Swift, you could still probably, I would think, bang out a server-side application component because just about every mobile app has a server component as well. But Go is really something that's taken the industry over on the server side just because it's very simple to distribute on Linux. It's quick. You know, there's a lot of advantages to the Go language. And then distributing it can be really straightforward. I saw a criticism of Go from the RGB project, which is a competitor to Taro, which are... Mm 
basically creating alternative assets, altcoins, if you will, on top of Bitcoin. And this RGB developer said that Taro's use of Go means that it's a server-side validated protocol, not a client-side validated protocol. And that would be bad for trustlessness on Bitcoin. I don't think you could make that uh, determination just by the use of Go language alone, because you can use Go for local applications, command line applications, backend applications that maybe a GUI sit on top that only do local stuff. You could totally do that. So it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a cloud component. It does generally imply that that's a cloud first company. They think, you know, in that regard, that's that's the, that's the language usually that people use in that area. So I could see the connection they're making, but there's not a one to one. Gotcha. Thanks for the clarification there. We received 1701 sats from True Grits. Oh, Star Trek boost. Right. NC1701, right? You got it. Yeah. I get to offer a bit of a correction, though it's because I wasn't clear in my previous boost. I don't use my mind Monero to buy Bitcoin. I hodl, but I also stack sats every paycheck and hodl those too. The sats I use for podcasting are bought separately as needed. I wish there was an easier way for the average person to mine Bitcoin instead of these massive farming operations. I hear you, True Grits, except think about gold. There's not an easy way for the average person to mine gold. That's always a big operation. So I think that money, it's a valuable thing. It tends to specialize and have industries grow up around its production, perhaps. You know, I I would love to see something become a little cheaper because I did a little, just a little looking around since the last episode and uh, I saw several companies, yeah, three, I think, that are selling space heaters that are Bitcoin miners. They're not very loud, like they're not very powerful. They do draw like, you know, 2000 watts or 1500 watts and they don't like heat huge rooms. But they are very slick looking and uh, they mine Bitcoin while they heat your room. Now, that's silly in a one off. But imagine if the technology to mine Bitcoin could somehow be as, you know, something more approachable in price, especially if we had more people like Intel manufacturing ASICs. And so you could embed that in there for anything that just really is the purpose of producing heat. Why not have a tiny, tiny Bitcoin miner going that's part of a pool that maybe you pool all your machines together. And so every space heater is a little mini, mini Bitcoin miner. And that could be a way average people could participate in the network, maybe. I also do what you do, True Grits, is I have my way for my, I acquire my investment sats, RoboSats, and then I have my own way for acquiring like my spending sats, like my checking book sats, which I'll use on things like boosts. And uh, those, I don't really care so much about the KYC. You know, I just want those and I want to participate in, you know, whatever network I'm trying to participate in. And I try to keep the two separate. So far, I've been successful. Clarkian boosted in with uh, 10,001 sats. Ooh, thank you. Is that a mega boost? I think that's our biggest boost of the episode. Mega boost. Great episode, guys. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Clark. You know, I will say it because the Bitcoin dad is too humble. This is all volunteer work. He doesn't make a dime on this. In fact, it's a cost center for him. And so the boosts are very much appreciated because it's a way of acknowledging the hard work that goes into the show. So thank you, everyone who did boost in this week. And uh, we did get a couple extras and a couple people that stream stats that didn't make it onto the show, but we see you and we appreciate you. Yeah, thanks so much. It really means a lot to get feedback from the audience. And I just want to mention one thing before wrapping up the show. The Bitcoin dad pod is attending the Adopting Bitcoin Conference November 15th to 17th in El Salvador. So if you're considering attending, check out our discount code. You can get a 21% discount because of course it's 21. And if you do, I will see you there. And that might be really fun because I'm going to be presenting a couple panels and hopefully meeting a lot of hacker Bitcoiners because it seems like a really hackery development focused conference with a little bit of the Bitcoin macroeconomics flavor to it. That might be the conference of the entire year that I, I'm going to 
regret missing the most. I just know that I've been traveling too much. I need to be home for the winter. Oh my gosh. That sounds like so much fun. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded Saturday, October 22nd, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad and I'm here as always with me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. 